And I want to ask you a question. Imagine you're with a friend. You're having a milkshake or something, whatever your beverage is, and you're talking about your week. You look at them, you ask them for advice, and they turn to you and they say, I think we should read the Bible. I wonder what your reaction is to that in that moment. I wonder how do you feel about that. And I wonder out loud because I want you to actually talk about it right now. Why don't you turn to someone near you, find someone near you, and talk about that. What's your reaction when someone says, let's read the Bible? You've got a minute. Let's talk. Well, how'd you go? Good. 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 Uh, I think we should read the Bible. I wonder if anyone's ever asked that before or said that as a response. Uh, I wonder if you thought about the Bible reading we had just a few moments ago, as Sarah read from Psalm 19. If you've got it there in front of you or your neighbour has it, it'd be good to see Psalm 19 again. Think about it. The psalmist there writes that the law of the Lord, we see there in Psalm 19, is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired than they are than gold. Sweeter they are than honey, than drippings of the honeycomb. This is God's word. This is the Bible. But is that your gut feel on the Bible? Is it more precious than gold to you? Is it sweeter than honey? You just want to get it and you just want to drink it in. That's often not our reaction to the Bible, is it? Most of us think when we come to the Bible, uh, we perhaps have two views on it. Uh, You'll see these two views up here. We either think the Bible is a bunch of rules, rules to follow, rules that we might not really agree with, like things like thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not sleep with thy girlfriend, thou shalt not look up YouTube during lectures. Whatever it is, we think the Bible is just a bunch of rules. For many of us, I fear this is the way that we view the Bible. That's just what it is. A place where you go where you need a bit of moral guidance every now and then. And while the Bible certainly does have rules and instructions in it, what I hope that you see tonight is this. The Bible isn't just a set of rules. It isn't just a set of rules. You uh, open up to a random page, and you could perhaps do that now. If you open the Bible to a random page, most often or not, what do you find? You don't find rules, you find a story. That's what you find. You see, the story in the Bible is the story of God acting in history. And that is primarily what the Bible is about. It's a story about God. It's his story. Secondly, the other thing that we fall into the trap into thinking is the book is just, the Bible is just a book of role models. It's not so much a story of God, but lots of little stories about people. Um, you know, a good book of role models, a book where people did good things, uh, people who can, you can aspire to be like, perhaps. Maybe you had people say something to you like, if you just had the faith like Abraham, you know, that little faith, if you had that, you could be a leader like Joshua. Perhaps you could even pray like Daniel. And while those people are in the Bible, they're not there so that they can be our role models. In fact, most of the people of the Bible, if you look at their lives, are just like us. They make mistakes. They get afraid. They run away. Sometimes they're downright mean and cruel. Sometimes they're kind and caring. They're not meant to be role models. 
They're just people caught up in God's story. And ultimately, that is what the Bible is. First and foremost, it's not rules, it's not role models. The Bible is God's story. It's a rescue story. The Bible is a story about God and his son Jesus. It's a wonderful adventure story, really. It's like the hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his treasure. It's a love story uh, about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, his everything to rescue the ones that he loves. It's actually the most wonderful of fairy tales, except it's not a fairy tale. It all happened in history. Now, when it comes to historical questions in the Bible, and you'll have an outline there on your, your sheet there to see these things, when it comes to historical questions, many people want to ask questions about the historicity of the Bible. Uh, can you trust something like this that was written so long ago? Can you trust that what's written in your hand you know, has been written by the original writers without any changes? Uh, what the Bible is, it's different than any other book of any other religion, though. You see, uh, if you read the, the writings of the Hindus or the Quran. The Bible is different than that. When you read the Bible, we're going to take a little bit of a time to answer tonight some of the questions about its historical background. It's a book in history. It's not a mythology. I want you to be holding in your mind as we delve into questions tonight the historicity of the Bible to start with. It's a historical story from beginning to end. See, the Bible is a collection, you'll see there on the screen, of 66 individual books divided into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but it's all one story. The 39 books of the Old Testament, you'll see them there, those 39, tell the story about how God created the world. He made it wonderful, but then, as the story shows, the people he made have rejected him. They told God to rack off and let them live life their own way. And God knew that this would not be the best way. Not the best way for humans to live. He knew apart from him, the source of everything good, they would experience suffering, sin and death. And so God did something about this problem. He chose a man. He intervened. He called the man Abram. He later known as Abraham. Whose descendants became the people of Israel. He promised that from this man and this nation would come a king. And this king would rescue them from the mess of this world, from the effects of sin. A king who would do something about the problem of death. And when you get to the New Testament, those 27 books, the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament. It introduces you to Jesus. It shows you that Jesus from the line of David the King of Israel, the promised Messiah, the one who died on the cross and rose from the dead. He conquered death and will one day return as king to end suffering and evil forever. Now that, friends, is a really small snapshot of the Bible. But it is a historical snapshot. All these things written down, bound together as one story, passed on from generation to generation. Psalm 102 says this, Let these words be written for future generations. Why? So that people not yet born, that's us by the way, may praise the Lord. The Bible is written, you see, for a purpose, so that we who read it might see that Jesus is the rescuer, the hero. The Bible is written so that John says, 
These things are written that we might believe Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But I want to pause there, because you may come along to see you, a Christian union. You may think, well, I'm not a Christian. In fact, if I'm anything, I'm sceptical. You might be a bit sceptical about this. You might be sitting there thinking, well, that's all well and good, great story. The problem is you can't trust this. You can't trust the Bible. You can't really believe it's God's word to us. Well, if that's you, I want you to listen as I give you seven quick reasons. They're on the sheet there in front of you. You may want to take notes. Seven quick reasons to point to the fact the Bible is no ordinary book. And here's the first one. Number one. The Bible is not the private experience of one man at a time. See, one of the things that makes the Bible stand out from most of the holy books is it's not the product from just one wise man. You know, people like Confucius or Buddha uh, had some ideas about God and wrote them down. Muhammad, the prophet, he had a message from an angel and wrote it all down, and that became the Quran. Joseph Smith apparently had the Book of Mormon delivered to him by an angel. You notice what's the similarities between all of these ones? Every single one, all major religions are the product of one man. But the Bible is different. The Bible says that God inspired many men for to write his words down, to write his story. The Bible is, importantly, not just one person's experience, and that leads us to the second point. Human authors of the Bible lived too far apart for there to be any collusion. That is, getting together and working it out. See, when you look at the timeline of the Bible, it simply doesn't allow for people to get together and make something up. They don't get together and invent a religion. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, written by over 40 different people in 40 different generations, and you can't have, because of the timeline, you can't have collusion. The writers could not have sat down together and come up with a story. It's impossible. Abraham, we know, lived 400 years before Moses. Moses lived 600 years before David. And David lived 1,000 years before Jesus. It's not like 40 blokes went into a room and came out with a new religion. Why is this so important? It's important because when you read the Old Testament, those books we saw earlier, all those 39 books, there are 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that predict the future. Different writers said different things about the Messiah, the King, who would come, and every single one of them has their yes in Jesus. Every single one of them comes true in Jesus Christ. 300 prophecies scattered over 1,500 years all find their fulfillment in the birth, teaching, signs, wonders, rejection, death, and resurrection and return of Jesus Christ. And when you see that, you think this is not blind faith. Not blind faith. In fact, you realise maybe it's true what God says in his word in Second Peter. No prophecy of scripture comes from man's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, you see, has woven it all together. And that brings us to the third point. The Bible is written by people from all different types of backgrounds. See, it wasn't just scholars... It wasn't just religious guys. It's not just guys like Paul who wrote it. 
not just those parts of the Bible and the whole thing, though. There is a real mixture. There's kings, there's shepherds, there's peasants, there's tax collectors, there's fishermen. This book is not the result of one class of person. And fourthly, therefore, the Bible is not trapped in one culture and one language. The Bible is written on three different continents. In Europe, as Paul wrote his letters, in Asia, where most was written in the Middle East, even in Africa, because Moses writes in Egypt. Three different continents, three different languages the Bible comes to us in. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, common language of the people of the time. The New Testament is written in Greek. It's called Common Greek for the time. And there's parts of it that's Aramaic, which is a common speaking language at the time. And furthermore, the Bible is written in many different styles. It contains lore and history, poetry, love letters, parables, biographies, prophecies. There's a huge range which shows us it's the result of real people having real experiences in real history. My point is simply this. The integrity of the Bible is seen it was written by different people in different places and different time slots using different literature. Yet get this, here's the kicker. It's one consistent story. One consistent story about God and his rescue plan for mankind. So although it's written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, what the Bible holds together is there's actually one author who's overseen the whole project. One story. Friends, remember, this is not a story isolated from history. You're sitting in a university. University means one truth. This is true historical It's for us to study. Now, the Bible happens, records events happening in real places in real time. You can cross-check these events with history and archaeology. You could take your Bible to the library and things would match up. And so we come to point five. There's a huge amount of external evidence for the Bible. The events in history of the Bible take place in real places. Some of the places we might know well, Jerusalem, Jericho, Mount Carmel, Rome, Athens, the list goes on. You can catch a plane and go to these places, in fact. Jesus was born in a real town called Bethlehem. He grew up in a real town called Nazareth. He died in a real city called Jerusalem. You can go there and check it out, and you can walk where Jesus walked. In fact, uh, I'm Steve's replacement tonight, but Steve's brother John has been there. There's a picture. That is Lake Galilee, Sea of Galilee, where Jesus taught John and his wife went on a trip to the region. There they are. There's John there. He looks like Steve because they're identical twins. John and his wife, Nicole, were there. They're in that tunnel there. That's Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem, mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20. You see, the Bible is not like Lord of the Rings, is it? In Lord of the Rings, there's a place called Middle Earth, but you can't go there. You can't get there, it doesn't exist. There's hobbits and Gandalf and orcs and trolls and all those guys didn't actually exist. It's fiction. But the Bible is fact. It's set in history. It's unlike myth. And these are real places in real times. Six, and this is most important, what we have in the Gospels is therefore eyewitness testimony. The Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, those four Gospels, are written down as eyewitness accounts. The apostles saw and touched Jesus. 
They heard him say those words. They wrote those things down as a record for us. Luke, one of the Gospel writers, tells us how he carefully investigated all that was written down and testified to these things. He would have interviewed many people, for instance, to get the details right about Jesus' birth, but not just Luke, we have four Gospels all based on eyewitness accounts, all consistent with each other, so that you know these events being described here are credible. They saw them, written down for us to see. During the lifetime of those who were there, people wrote down these things so that we're able to confirm or unconfirm what has been said. See, it's not like... It's not like as though everyone else died and then the Gospels are written. No, the last of them even, written by John, John's Gospel, was written about AD 90 in that year. So that was written, that Gospel was penned within living memory of people who were still alive when they saw Jesus. Which means, if you make something up and write a story about someone and it gets distributed around the place, people would discredit it very easily. Well, we were there. You're making it up. But they don't. Because over 500 witnesses saw the risen Jesus over 40 days, people were there. See, friends, we don't take the Quran's view of Jesus, we don't take that view seriously because the Quran's view of Jesus was written by Muhammad when? 600 years later. 600 years after Jesus. He claims that Jesus was not the Son of God. That's a big claim 600 years later when you weren't there. He claims that Jesus didn't die on a cross. See, here's our choice, isn't there? Here's our choice. Are we going to believe first-hand accounts, eyewitnesses? Or are we going to believe someone who lived in another city, in another country, 600 years after the event? And then, seventh, there's the textual evidence. Stay with me, I know we're going for a while. But textual evidence assures us that what we have in our hands today is an actual reflection of what was written by the original writers. You've got a Bible in your hand right now, right in front of you, that is true to the same Bible throughout history, without change. When you do your research and you look into the number of early Christian manuscripts that we have, we can learn with certainty what we know about the text. See, most of you, I'd assume, would believe Plato's writings, right? You believe Plato wrote, you believe his writings. Plato wrote about 428 BC, so 428 years before Christ, Plato wrote. He wrote a number of things, and the earliest copy, the earliest copy we have of his writing that we have is 1,200 years after the event of his life and his writings. And do you know how many copies we have? Seven. Seven copies of Plato's works, 1,200 years later, that's what we have about him and his life and writings. Herodias was born in 480 BC, still in the BCs we're talking, which you may have studied in year 12. The earliest copy we have of Herodias' work was actually 1,300 years after he wrote, and we have eight copies. But get this. The New Testament you have right there in front of you or in your hand. That was written in the first century. We've got copies well within a generation, 100 years of the originals. And we have those early centuries, of those early centuries, 5,600 manuscripts found over a broad range of geographical area as Christianity spread. So you see the difference? 
We have copies far closer to the events and we have thousands on thousands of those copies. The sheer number of early manuscripts is astounding. Even better is the differences amongst those manuscripts that come from different places. It's estimated that of all the manuscripts, and there's thousands there, of all the manuscripts, the differences between them comes to about a half of a percent. A half of a percent. There are some differences. There are slight spelling differences. Sometimes some manuscripts use the phrase kingdom of God and other copies have just the kingdom. The differences are tiny and no doctrine of teaching is in any way undermined by their slight differences. Nothing swings on it. 99.5% of manuscripts are exactly the same. What does that give you confidence in? Yes, the scribes worked hard. They were the human photocopy machines of their day. It was their job. But it gives us confidence in that what we have is accurate. We've been saying a lot tonight, but I just want to say in conclusion, at the end of the day, I can give you seven things and long lists of reasons to why to show you that the Bible is a credible piece of history. Why it's a written piece of literature you should look at. But at the end of the day, there's only one thing that's going to persuade you that the book, this book, is the Word of God. And that's the person who's at the centre of the story. That's Jesus. See, it's only when you get to know Jesus, the hero of the Bible's story, will you be persuaded that this book really is God speaking to you. God revealing himself to you. God inviting you to become part of his story. So finally, the question is, for you, will you trust God and his word? You don't need to believe the Bible in order to read it. That's the beauty of it. If you're not someone who believes, can I encourage you to be the open-minded person to read the Bible, to read one of the Gospels, to see whether you think it's believable. Go in with an open mind, read about the God who loves you, who loves you, to die for you, to rescue you. You see, friends, the Bible is not a bunch of rules. It's not a collection of role models. No, at its heart is a rescue story. The Bible is not simply interested in telling you to straighten up and get in line. It's not telling you to be like that person that you can't ever live up to. And the Bible is telling you a story of the one who left his throne to rescue you. It's the story of God the Son steps on stage and defeats our enemies, of Satan, sin and death. It's the story about how God loves and offers forgiveness. It's a story that captures our hearts, it revives our souls, it changes us so that we love the hero and we live a life of praise to him.